Hey everyone, this is Rob Hunt coming to you from sunny Southern California for another great episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. We are really lucky this week to be joined by the Deadhead Cyclist, uh, old friend of the shows who I think was on just about a year ago, also founder and uh, owner of the Boulder Weekly in Boulder, Colorado, Mr. Stu Sallow. Also joined today by my co-host Jim Marty from Longmont, Colorado, and soon to be joined by Larry Mishkin from somewhere in, I believe, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Jim, how are you doing today? Very good. I'm out in my barn, uh, all set up to do the show. Fantastic. And Stu, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you again. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. So uh, so I think today, uh, format-wise, we're going to talk a little bit about the Grateful Dead, talk about what you're up to, Stu, uh, cover some, um, some milestones that kind of happened on this day in Grateful Dead history, and then uh, discuss what's happened in the world of cannabis. But, uh, but let's start off with you. What's new in, uh, in Stu Salas' world since the last time we saw you a year ago? Well, I guess the big news is that uh, the book has been f- completed, all 52 chapters, and it's now in the hands of my editor-slash-agent, who is uh, furiously editing, uh, getting rid of uh, you know all of the little niggly grammatic errors and things like that that uh, that even the best of us journalists do, because we all need an editor. You know, after we get through that process, which should be around the end of this month, um, we'll have a book and we'll be creating a book proposal and uh, shopping it around to different publishers and you know, see which publisher is, is the lucky chosen one to publish the book, The Deadhead Cyclist. So that's really the big news um, for me uh, that's, that's new since last year. When I was with you last year, I was, uh, oh, about halfway through the book, a uh, third of the way through the book, and uh, it's been quite a journey going through uh, a year of Grateful Dead concerts, picking a concert of the week, uh, for each week of the year, picking a lyric out of that concert and, you know, trying to come up with uh, some interesting, uh, relevant life lessons that we can learn from the poetry of the Grateful Dead, of which there are many. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people forget that um, that John Perry Barlow and Robert Hunter were kind of the two forgotten scribes of, uh, of Grateful Dead world and that they added as much to the band as, um, as the members, you know, the revolving cast of members over the years. Um, you know, right out of the gate, are you more of a hunter guy? Are you more of a Barlow guy? Or you know, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because um, there's a lot of people who don't even know there was a second lyricist. Lyricist. Everybody thinks uh, uh, that Robert Hunter was the the lyricist for all the Grateful Dead tunes, and a lot of people don't realize. Some of the comments that I get when I post things on social media suggest that uh, that there was. Uh, uh, that a lyric that was written by John Perry Barlow was was written by Robert Hunter, and the person will say something like, "Well, I think what Hunter meant by this was," and and it's actually, you know, I don't want to, I didn't have the, I don't have the heart to say, you know, uh, that's John Perry Barlow that wrote that. But I didn't answer your question. Your question was, which was my favorite, and and you know, I I I hate to pick favorites, but I guess I'd have to say Hunter. Although I do like a lot of what John Perry Barlow did, and um, and losing them both uh, in such close proximity to each other was uh, was definitely a big loss. And uh, but luckily we have their poetry to sustain us for the rest of our lives. And we uh, we were just joined by uh, by Larry Mishkin. Larry, how you doing today? I'm doing good, guys. Uh, nice to be here, Stu. Nice to see you again. Thanks for coming back to the show. We really appreciate it. And 
uh, you know, dropping in on the uh, tail end of that conversation there. I think that's, you know, one of those unfair kind of questions, right? Because they're both so great that <laughs> right. how can you really pick a favorite? But I'm sure I just have this feeling that if most deadheads were pushed, Hunter's name would come up on top. Well, when you, when you look at lyrics like, uh, you know, the stuff in, in Terrapin Station, for example, the, the Terrapin Station medley, I mean, that is just you know, absolutely world-class poetry. Um, the Barlow stuff, you know, had this really attractive, you know, Western cowboy theme to it mostly. Uh, although, um, uh, you know, there was also a, you know, a hitchhiking theme uh, in there. And, you know, there were, there were, there were, a lot, there were numerous themes, but, you know, uh, which is, the cowboy thing is a little harder for me to relate to than the hippie theme. And I think that Hunter focused more on the hippie stuff, the the love and the ripples in still water, and you know all all that stuff that that is you know sort of um, I guess you'd have to just say admit it's psychedelically induced. Um, I don't think that I don't think that that Barlow was as much into that scene, um, but his stuff his life lessons are are really beautiful as well. I like them both. Well, I actually have a little story about that. Uh, Hunter and uh, John Perry Barlow, how that happened was um, Hunter was very fussy about his lyrics. And when he finished his lyrics and handed them to Jerry or Bob, they were done. He didn't want them changed. And Bob used to change his words. Mm-hmm. In fact, Sugar Magnolia, the jump like a Willie's and four wheel drive came from Bob. And Hunter was pissed. And he says to John Perry Barlow, he goes, he's all yours now. I'm done. And so that's how the uh, lyrics for Bob shifted <laughs> over to John Perry Barlow. Now, I don't know if that story is 100% true, but I, I read it in a book somewhere, I'm sure. It rings true for me. Yeah, it, it's funny you say that because, you know, you, you brought up the hitchhiking theme, and obviously Black-Throated Wind um, went through a handful mm-hmm. of iterations from when it was first released, I think, in 73, to when it was re-released right. in 1990. When it came back, it was completely different lyrics. And then you had to sort of mm-hmm. go back and try to think about which song, you know, which lyrics am I going to sing when the song comes on? Uh, and then it sort of, you know, iterated back and forth between incorporating some of the originals and some of the later lyrics, of which, like, I'm not sure which ones, you know, I like better. Some I think I, I like the way they were replaced in the um, in the later versions, but I think, you know, the, the purest to me is, like, don't change what was already great. Um, so it's hard to say, and I wonder if Barlow, you know, took offense to that, because I gotta think that that was uh, mostly weird, you know, changing Barlow's lyrics than Barlow doing it himself. Well, you know, times do change, especially over the course of 55 years, or 56 years, I guess it's been now. And, you know, this this came up in something, uh, in one of the chapters of my book, uh, the headline of which was, uh, it's from uh, Mexicali Blues, is there anything a man don't stand to lose when he lets a woman hold him in her hands? And that song, Mexicali Blues, is rife with lyrics that could not pass today. Um... Like, you know, instead I've got a bottle and a girl who's just 14, uh, for example. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it's interesting because you can't change the lyrics uh, substantially. And yet, with lyrics like that, it sort of calls for a change because times have changed over the last 50 plus years. But don't you think that Mexicali Blues in a lot of ways is like a passage of judgment on the, um, on the protagonist of the song? 
I mean, I've got to think that, like, you know, he's down in Mexicali. He's made bad choices. He made bad choices of going down and, you know, shooting someone before he even drew. You know, now he's stuck basically with, you know, can't go back to the States. You know, it's kind of across the border, you know, or, or right on the U.S. side of the border. No longer able to, to live the life he previously had because he's made terrible decisions in his life. So like, I always thought it was a combination of the, um, of the lifestyle. Yes, he is not glorified as a hero, for sure. Agreed, but there's also overtones of heroism in it that, you know, this guy's a stud and he's, uh, you know, a killer. The guy couldn't even draw. He's quite a marksman. Um, uh, you know, it's, it, I, I, I'm not taking issue with the lyrics, um, but I do think that there were numerous examples of misogyny in the Grateful Dead organization and in the hippie movement in general. Uh, during the '60s, that um, you know that that should be called out and uh, that we should take note of for their historic value. So, Stu, my question I have for you is based on the comment you made a few minutes ago that was interesting, which is when Hunter was done with the tune, he handed it off to Garcia, and and he was done with it. The one that, that I've run into in later years that that really drove me crazy for a long time was when I started seeing all the various incarnations of the dead members, and they would play Friend of the Devil, there was this strange verse they added at the end that I had never heard. And I couldn't figure out, are they making this up? Where did this come from? How is it that they can be, you know, changing a classic Garcia tune? And I finally did some research and realized that uh, Hunter wrote the song without the last tune, gave it to Garcia, he recorded it, and then Hunter came back later and said, you know, I've written this last verse, and Garcia's response was, no, no, I've already recorded it, I like the way it is, and so, you know, in that instance, Garcia was unwilling to make the change. And his entire career, he always played it that same way, omitting that final verse. But if you go and you check the official lyrics of Robert Hunter, that final verse is now in there. So, you know, I, I don't know if that was Jerry exercising, uh, you know, his, his editorial privilege or, uh, uh, you know, or what the story was. But uh, it, that just drove me crazy for the longest time until I took a few minutes to figure out what was going on. I had not heard that. So I'm going to have to look that up now. A few minutes ago, we were talking about misogyny, and I was just going to comment in that I had just recently finished uh, Roni Stanley's book. Uh, she wrote about her time in the 60s with the band. Very misogynistic. I mean, the takeaway I had from that book was she said, uh, well, back then in the 60s, the best way to get to know somebody was to have sex with them. So it was a different time in a different place. And the, what was expected of, of women and relationships was, with men in the roaring wild 60s was very different than it is today. Yeah, no question about it. And you have to give some allowances for the, for the times. And a lot of what I wrote about in this chapter uh, in question has to do with the way Donna Jean Godshaw was treated, uh, not just by the band um, and not just 50 years ago, but in present tense uh, in terms of the way people... Uh, criticize her singing. There's there's a, a reference in my book uh, to a video uh, that's posted on YouTube that uh, is titled "Donna Ruins Every Playing in the Band," and it's a it's a conglomeration of all of, of numerous versions of playing in the band, one after the next, on this recording of of just her her wailing. Um, in, in between, you know, you know the, the, the spot where she wails. And my point, my point was this. I think it's unfair criticism. First of all, 
the Grateful Dead were never a professional sounding band vocally. I hate to I hate to be so critical of them because I love the Grateful Dead. You know, I mean, my book is all about how much I love the Grateful Dead and my life as a deadhead and all that stuff. You know, but I think you can love something and criticize it. In fact, I think criticism can be a great form of love. Uh, we all experience that in relationships that we're involved in. Uh, I I think and. So my criticism of the dead should not be misconstrued as being any lack of affection. But I think it's important to call to call this out that uh that during the during the early years of the Grateful Dead, the way Phil sang those high backup parts was uh let, let's just say um significantly um less appealing than the way Donna sang them. And yet um, Donna got a lot of criticism for her singing uh, that Phil never got, and not just Phil, but all all of them. You know, uh, they were just not a vocally uh, solid band, um, really until until Donna got there and gave them a, a bit of a professional uh, sound with with her backup vocals. And and so and I think that the reason she was cr- criticized in a way that the boys were not criticized was because of her gender. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sticking by that. Now, when I put that out there on social media, boy, did I get an avalanche of criticism. Um, and, um, you know, I kind of, it got to the point where I just wanted it to stop because it, it went on for days. Usually when I post one of my chapters on social media, um, you know, I get comments and reactions for, you know, two or three days. In in this case, it went on for over a week, and I I just I just couldn't wait for it to end. And the hatred and vitriol that was being expressed towards me, although there there were also, to be fair, there were also a lot of people that were saying, "Thank you for saying something that I've been thinking for many years." Um, you know, when my wife when when Mexicali Blues comes on, my wife makes me skip it for exactly that reason because of the you know the girl who's just fourteen and and all, all that kind of stuff, but I, I really I really feel badly for Donna that she's been the subject of so much uh, criticism about her singing, even though there is a, a an aspect of it that's fair criticism, but I think it's I, I think it's it's excessive and I think it's due to gender. It's interesting you talk about the Grateful Dead's ability to harmonize and to kind of um, sing good backup vocals because. I think they are uniquely aware of that defect in uh, in their abilities, and they really tried hard in the early '70s to fix it. You know, I think American Beauty and Working Man's Dead were were testament to the um, to the, how hard they tried, and how much they worked with people like you know Crosby, Stills, and Nash to to try to you know get out there and learn how to harmonize better. So it wasn't for a lack of awareness; it was certainly um, something they worked on and worked on and worked on in their careers. But you're right; I mean, harmony is tough. Some people have it. Like I'm not a huge Eagles fan, but damn, they're great harmonists. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of bands where I, where I go, you know, they've got it. They they know how to do this. And like you know, um, uh, Fleetwood Mac, you know, another example, just you know, amazing at how well they can uh, interact with each other. And the Grateful Dead. I mean, outside of you know, the end of like um, um, when I paint my masterpiece, where like Jerry chimes in, or the end of Promised Land, where Jerry, you know, or where, where Bobby chimes in, it's 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 hard for them to uh, to get it when they go through the whole thing. Which is why you know, like in Addicts of My Life, which we'll talk about later. Is, is such a difficult song. Like some people hate it, some people love it, but it, it, it's not a vocally beautiful song in the way it's sung. It's just the lyrics are, are gorgeous, the music's gorgeous, but it's not, you know, you, you can't say that the singing is fantastic. 
Yeah. A, a lot of uh, the reason why the dead are judged uh, adversely for their vocals is because a lot of what we're listening to is live stuff. The bands that you listed, you know, with Fleetwood Mac and Crosby, Stills and Nash and, and you know, all of the, the Eagles, um, you're mostly listening to their studio recordings and judging them on that basis. And you mentioned American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. Well, those are studio recordings. And I think, that, yes, they did work hard on their vocals. There's a, there's a video that I saw where Jerry and Phil and Bob are sitting around uh, and Jerry is playing an acoustic guitar and, and Phil and Bob are not playing instruments at all. And they're rehearsing Candyman. And they're going over and over. And Jerry's saying, no, man, you're a little flat. You know, and, and and yeah, you could see how hard how hard they were working, and they they really did try hard. I think they tried uh, uh, even harder when Brent got into the band, and I think Brent brought an even uh, an even more uh, professional backup vocal uh, sound to the band uh, than, than than ever before. But of course, you know, then then you then you were dealing with the decline of Jerry's voice and you know, some other things that, that were offsetting factors. But yeah, you're right. They they did work hard at it. It just wasn't their forte. And you know what? None of us cared because we just we just loved the music so much and the message so much that it didn't really matter. Yeah, you made some comments that uh, you do uh, some research on uh, Grateful Dead lyrics as words to live by. Do you have some comments on that? Well, you know, staying with the same example... Is there anything a man don't stand to lose when he lets a woman hold him in her hands? I, I think we all gain a lot when we when we let a woman hold us in their hands. Um, that was the conclusion that I came to. The Grateful Dead gained a lot when they put the fate of their vocal sound in Donna's hands during those years, and uh, and I think that we all uh, need to be grateful for uh, you know the the gentle voice of of a woman. Um, I, I think that's, you know, that's one example uh, of, of course, many. I mean, can I jump in on that? Because, I mean, again, looking at that um, lyric in a vacuum, um, I don't think that was a sweeping statement on, on women in general. I think that was taken from the perspective of the treachery of Billie Jean in that song. And she tricked the, uh, the, the person singing it into something that he didn't want to do, which is commit murder. So, you know, if you think about the fact that, uh, that he made a bad decision because he was basically taken by, by a woman that he was so attracted to, that he was willing to do anything, that the, uh, that lyric is speaking directly to, wow, I made a huge mistake and this is my experience, not the experience of, of women in general. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's also a very good and accurate take on it. I just went off in this direction because... I, I was in the mood to defend Donna from some of the Donna hate that was going around, and I used this lyric as as a way of sort of inversely uh, making that point. So here's what I want to say about Donna, because Donna has become far more controversial than she needs to be. If you call into a Tales from the Golden Road and try and say anything bad about her boy, they will bounce you out of there so fast that you know, you'll, your head will spin. You know, and, and my take on it is this. I am not a music expert by any means. I never studied music. But there are definitely songs where Donna is singing and somebody's not in the right key. They're, they're not in the same key. But now that you mention it, you know, I always looked at it from the perspective that maybe she was the one out of tune. Maybe it was them. Maybe she was singing in the right key all along and the guys just couldn't keep up with her. Now, by the same token, there are other songs where she fills in 
on, you know, some of these, uh, you know, uh, 1970s, you know, Scarlet Begonias and Fire on the Mountain and other stuff mm-hmm. where I think she brings a whole lot to the song. But, and, and it's not so much that women don't work because in a number of these, you know, bands that, that are going around touring now, they include women as part of the, you know, the, the vocalist. Jerry always had, you know, women singing in his band. Um, and I, I don't think it was the Deadheads per se didn't like a woman. I just think that in the overall scheme of things, Donna was not used properly. For instance, <laughs> You Ain't Woman Enough. I love that tune. You know, I think that's an amazing tune. I'm not a big fan of France, and I'm not a big fan of whatever the other one was. Uh, 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 I know which one you're talking about. It was the, uh, during the during the 77 tour. They, they, she, she sang it a lot. I, I know what you're talking about. Those I wasn't, but when she sang "You Ain't Woman Enough" in 1973 on the on that tour that that year, I I go back and I listen to that over and over. I mean, she's totally you know jamming on that and 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 writing it out. So I I think that Donna, my my bottom take is she's obviously a very talented vocalist. Um, you know, people far smarter than I have said that, but just you know my untrained ear on certain times and sometimes she'd hit a song just right. Other times on that same song, it, it could be jarring you know my wife is the one who says i'm not listening to donna whaling and she turns it off not me so you know i take that for what it is and you know look if donna was here i'd give her a big hug and kiss and say thanks for the effort yeah 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 and sunrise is the song you're thinking about larry you you know just to change the subject a little bit i came to the conclusion in one of the chapters in my book that some of the lyrics are just absolute nonsense they don't mean anything and here's one example. Comic book colors on a violin river crying Leonardo words from out a silk trombone. You know, you could go out with every lyric in China Cat, though, and say the same thing. None, none of China Cat makes any sense. The whole point of China Cat is it's, you know, it's actually a psychedelic, like, um, like Alice in Wonderland, uh, Lewis Carroll-style writing. Right, right. But, but the point of that is that, that I think is kind of interesting is that there is a nonsense to life sometimes. Sometimes it just doesn't make any sense. You know, we always want to make sense of it. We always want to come up with some rational explanation for why things happen, why bad things happen to good people. You know, there must be, you know, there must be a deity up there with a plan that, uh, you know, that, that where all of this makes sense. And my take is, uh, there, th- there's a lot of what's going on around us that's absolutely nonsensical, and having a, a song like China Cat that has nonsensical lyrics like that is sort of a way of underscoring the nonsensical nature of life that we experience from time to time. I say, welcome to the world of fish, right? That's, I mean, fishes. All the fishes' lyrics, for the most part, are, are silly, nonsensical lyrics that just, I, you know, it. it a lot of times I'd rather just not listen to the lyrics and just listen to the guitar and the music because, you know, I want to go see the man Mulcahy. I want to see the man, you know, yeah. Or you, yeah. if we sing Haley's Comet over and over and over again, although Haley's Comet happens to be a song, I think, where they actually do have some really clever lyrics ultimately worked into it. Um, but a, a number of their tunes, that was my initial problem with them till I got to the point where I said, they're such good musicians, it doesn't really matter, but I like your take on it, and that's a, another excellent way to look at it, that maybe it's just a statement of them saying, you know, the world is a crazy place and we can't always be serious. That said, I love the imagery of the, 
you know, comic book colors on a violin river, you yes. know, and I even have an illustration that, that I used on my blog for that, that, uh, that was, that's really fantastic. Uh, very psychedelic looking. Um, but, uh, you know, you mentioned fish and I don't want to talk about fish. Uh, but what I do want to talk about is, um, a reference to the 2015 Fare Thee Well shows that, that I, uh, uh, that was in a piece that I wrote for the Boulder Weekly that's coming out tomorrow that has to do with um, why Dead & Company canceled their Florida shows. Can, can we get into that for a minute? Please. So are you all aware that out of 33 shows, for some reason they decided, uh, th- because of logistical issues, to cancel their two Florida shows, which were coming up uh this weekend, I think they were supposed to be uh, this weekend in um, Palm Beach and uh, Tampa, Florida. And, um, you know, the piece that I wrote for Boulder Weekly happens to be published in our vote edition in which we give political endorsements for city council candidates and other uh, state uh, initiatives that are going on right now. There's there's nothing happening uh, on a national level, but it's, you know, it's the odd numbered years are always the the local ones. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I dug into this a little bit and it's pretty obvious that the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, um, cost those people uh, in Florida these two Dead & Company shows by enacting this uh, policy that a business cannot ask for proof of vaccination as a precondition of service. And then he doubled down on that most recently, just three, just three weeks ago, uh, by saying that there was a $5,000 fine that could be levied on any business uh, asking for, vacc- for proof of vaccination as a precondition of, of, bus- of uh, uh, service, which includes... Uh, coming into a, a, a rock concert and uh, and it's five thousand dollars per incident by the way which means that if you have a venue with thirty thousand people and a thousand people come in and you refuse to allow them to come in because they're not vaccinated or can't show proof of, of a negative covid test you could be subject to fines up to five million dollars so what choice did Dead & Company have and Live Nation but to cancel these shows uh, to indemnify themselves from a financial disaster and also, more to the point, uh, protect themselves and their fans from the events becoming super spreader events and participating in, in the spread of this virus. So, um, you know, I, 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 that's... That's uh, the gist of the piece. You can you can read that piece tomorrow uh, at boulderweekly.com, by the way. And I would I would be remiss in my duty as the deadhead cyclist if I didn't point out that all 52 chapters of my book are um, available in their unedited form at deadheadcyclist.com. Well, let me just say this really fast because I have an alternative theory as to why the dead shows were canceled. And while I absolutely agree with what you say, and I think it's a sad statement of our times, I will say this. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week, the quintet is playing three nights at the Capitol Theater. That's Phil and Jimmy Herring and Warren Haynes, Rob Baracco, and John Molo. 
and the quintet plus a now available Bob Weir equals Crusader Rabbit Stealth Band. So, you know, Bobby may have had an ulterior motive here as well. It doesn't, not very often he gets to go join the quintet and elevate them to the status of the Crusader Rabbit Stealth Band. So uh, I'd like to think that uh, whatever the reasons were in Florida, that this will make a nice uh, surprise for those of us who are going to be uh, out in Port Chester next week. Well, Larry, um, do you have a ticket for me? I'm sure we can find one. <laughs> okay. I'm sure we can find one. So a couple comments. Yeah, it's here, right here in Colorado, it's going county by county. So when Phil played Summit County two weeks ago, uh, there was no proof of vaccination uh, requested. When Fish played Labor Day weekend, they did request proof of vaccination. But uh, So you got wristbanded, but they really didn't check your wristbands going in. I had my sweatshirt on the first night. Nobody checked to see that my wristband was under my sweatshirt. But then when Phil played five miles from my house in Lyons, Colorado last week, mm -hmm. uh, they did request uh, proof of vaccination. So it's kind of all over the board. I have to say, we, and I watch it very carefully, we had 30,000 people, three nights for fish, and we actually are seeing declining hospitalizations. But they required proof of vaccination. Yes, they did. But again, it didn't seem to be strictly enforced, is, is my takeaway. But anyway, um, back to, I just want to make a quick comment on, uh, so Larry, you don't get the deep spiritual meaning of Reba? Tell it to the butcher by the pound. I'm, you know, I, I, I have no idea what he's talking about, but I, I don't even want to try to imagine. I love the song, you know, when they're playing it. I have a great time with it. It's, yeah, I, you know, look like bathtub gin. You know, what is it? A thousand barefoot kids dancing on my lawn, or whichever one of those tunes it is, right? Yeah, it's down with disease. Down with disease. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm no. The point I'm making is I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with the conversation because from there, the musical aspects of Reba are just soaring. Anyway, another comment I wanted to make is, um, yeah, Hunter wasn't one to uh, explain his lyrics. You know, if you ever asked him, he wouldn't really comment on his lyrics and say what they meant. Yeah, well, actually, uh, w when you say that, something comes to mind, which is uh, that Hunter did comment on what Box of Rain means. And, and, and the answer is that Box of Rain is the earth. That came out of a conversation that he had with a fan who... I guess, got him to let his guard down because you're right, traditionally he didn't talk about his lyrics. Although in the, in the movie Long Strange Trip, he, he, did, um, he did repeat one of those nonsensical lines. Um, actually, it was the line in um, uh, Dark Star. It wasn't, it wasn't from China Cat. But Dark Star is also um, replete with plenty of nonsensical lyrics. I think it might have been the one about, um, I can't remember exactly how, how it went, uh, but he repeated the lyric. God, I wish I could remember it right now. I, I apologize. But then he repeated the lyric, and then he said, "What is unclear about that?" And I think that's—I think that's revealing of what his attitude was. It's like, okay, it's there's nothing unclear about this to me, and there shouldn't be anything unclear about it to you. It's whatever you want it to mean. I think is is, is the point. And. Uh, but the, but the box of rain he did let his he did let his guard down and 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 told us what that meant. That may be partially because um, there's so many people that misinterpreted that that song was about um, you know the death of Phil Esch's father. So I think you know that's the common belief is that was what the song was written for because Phil sung it to his father you know right before he passed. That uh, Hunter might have wanted to um, give a sense of that you know that isn't necessarily true and there's been a misconception all along. 
Could be, um, although it's, it follows with, I don't know who put it there. It's just a box of rain, I don't know who put it there, which seems to suggest, you know, that that, that interpretation of it being the earth um, and the question about whether there was a creator or not, you know, it brings up that whole subject, which is, which is a subject that I, that I love to engage in. Yes, uh, so many of Grateful Dead lyrics have been absolute guide points for my personal as well as business life. Ain't no time to hate. Maybe you'll find direction around some corner where it's been waiting to meet you. That path is for your steps alone. That's what I teach my kids. It's just mm-hmm. wonderful stuff. Just absolutely. I call it the Grateful Dead's a combination of Shakespeare and Mozart. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, which is why it's so worthy, uh, which is why Dead & Company is so worthy of, uh, of support and adoration, even though they get a lot of criticism for, you know, playing things too slow and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But they're, they're keeping it alive and they have enlivened another generation, maybe two generations. Sometimes when I go to a Dead & Company show, I see three generations of people there. And they've they've done a great job of keeping it alive and keeping keeping it going, and I'm I'm grateful for that. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna criticize them for, you know, for playing a song too slow or for having uh, Bob sing Stella Blue or something like that. Well, you know, that's a good point. And and I they played at Wrigley Field, and half the crowd was under thirty. And I commented mm-hmm. on the, on the show a couple of weeks ago. It wasn't just that these younger kids were there. They dressed the part. They looked the part. They danced. They knew all the key lines. I mean, it was like as if any of us, when we first started going to see shows, and it's amazing how, you know, how this has carried on and how many generations down the road, you know, can this type of devoted dedication, uh, you know, really be expected to continue. And and we'll see. And, and, you know, we've also talked about Dead & Company. At the end of the day, I come out, it's very simple. Where else would you rather be? You know, if you have a chance to sit home and watch TV or go see Dead & Company, I want to go see the guys who made the music. Yes, at Wrigley Field, they played a number of tunes that can drive you crazy if you're a traditionalist and you're trying to sing along the way you always remember the songs. It can really throw you off. And in that respect, I think that's where they get a lot of the pushback. Um, but for the people who are, you know, my kids and their contemporaries, you know, they never saw Jerry for good or for bad. This is the, the version of the dead that they know. And, and they love it. And, you know, so in that respect, I agree. It's not a question of whether it speaks to me. And quite frankly, if it doesn't, I can go see Phil Lesh and the quintet. And you know what? They'll play the dead songs that I've been waiting to hear. And they'll play it a little more up-tempo in a way I like to hear it. And mm-hmm. everybody will be happy. Yeah. Or you can go to a Dark Star Orchestra show and see it performed virtually the same way it was performed originally. Yep. That's true. That's talent. Stu, uh, you're going to be headed to any of the Dead & Company shows here in Colorado? We're lucky enough to have four shows coming up. Right. That's, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. I, I'm, feeling, I'm going to feel really left out of those Red Rock shows. When I first saw Dead & Company at the uh, uh, Broomfield Events Center, which is nearby, uh, it must be near you as well, um, I just really wanted them to play at Red Rocks. I wanted to see them at Red Rocks. I never saw the dead at Red Rocks. And, um, I mean, I've seen Dark Star Orchestra and, and Further and, you know, a, a lot of the other ones, but I never saw the actual Grateful Dead. I was living in California when all those Red Rock shows took place. So finally they're playing at Red Rocks, and I'm going to be uh, in Arizona for the entire month of October. I'm leaving on Friday uh, I have three baseball tournaments that I'm playing in in uh, Arizona 
uh, scheduled, and I'm going to be missing those uh, Red Rock shows. I wasn't that excited about the Fiddler's Green shows anyway, but I would have gone if I was in town. But on the upside, I was able to get tickets to see Dead & Company in Phoenix on October 25th. Uh, I think that's the date. Uh, so I will be seeing I will be seeing one show of this tour. So I'm 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 happy about that. But no, Jim, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to join you for those shows here in Colorado. Well, Jim, I'm sure will give us uh, good reviews as he always does. He's he's uh, he's been in the catbird seat this year in terms of live music returning, and uh, he's had options that the rest of us uh, have not had yet. So uh, he's been keeping busy going to all those shows and then uh, cluing us in on all the good stuff that he's seeing. You know. And, I'll be honest, part of that's the motivating factor to put me on a plane to go out to New York for a few days. That, plus I love seeing Phil and those guys, and I've never been to the Cap Theater, so, you know, I hear all these great stories from Rob Hunt, and uh, you got to go to the Cap Theater, have a chili dog at, Hump, at Hubs afterwards, so uh, we'll, be, we'll be scouting it out. So, yes, Phil was great here. You're going to really enjoy Phil. I mentioned on last week's show, and I think Stu might have a comment, we've been talking about singing on key and having good vocals. Graham Lesh has a beautiful voice. He really knocks it out of the park, and he doesn't mess up the lyrics either. You know, that's something that uh, is common to virtually all of the post-Grateful Dead bands. Uh, there, there wasn't nearly the um, uh, lyrical missteps that took place uh, during, during ac- the actual Grateful Dead concerts. And I often wonder, I ask myself sometimes, because I listen to these uh, concerts while I'm uh, riding uh, my bikes in the uh, well in nine different states as uh, I've, I've ridden uh, over the course of the time of of uh, writing the book. Um, but I often ask myself, man, are are they are they that fucked up that Jerry can't remember the words to to uh, uh, Bertha? You know, um, I mean, is that is that what it is? But you know, nowadays they have they have better technology too. You know, um, as as uh, as a musician, I can tell you that you know having the little iPad there uh, clipped onto your to your music stand, uh, you know, just just makes a huge difference. And they all they all have that now. So maybe that's you know maybe that's the reason why they get the lyrics uh, more accurately now than they used to. Yeah, I think that's a great segue, Stu. Um, you know, we obviously been talking about. Um, lyrics of a lot of different songs and um i listen to the grateful dead when i ride my bike all the time and for the most part i always listen to soundboard recordings because obviously it's just the crispest and cleanest way to listen to the grateful dead but once in a while you get a show that comes out that um the audience is a sort of the preferred method of listening simply because the crowd interaction with the band is so exceptional that um that you know you want to hear what the reaction was and sometimes the fanfare you know if it's a breakout or if it's you know uh, just a stellar performance of a specific version so, you know, we were going to talk a little bit about um, 10-9-89, which is the show that was billed as formerly the Warlocks. And if you want to talk about something that, you know, it's fun to listen to in your headphones when you're riding your bike, the opening of the Dark Star uh, coming out of, you know, the, uh, the, the play, Uncle John's plan, I believe, to open the second set is, is pretty ridiculous. Um, Dan, do you have a, cl- a quick little clip of that?
what that was was the um, the first time the Grateful Dead played Dark Star in 359 shows. The last one they played before that was July the 13th on 1984. So uh, 30 seconds straight of just pure fanfare from the uh, from the crowd. So I don't know if any of you guys were at that show. I, I missed it by a week. I saw the Brendan Burns shows about a week later, which you know had the next Dark Star afterwards. But uh, nothing, nothing compares to kind of that feeling inside Hampton, which is notorious for being a loud, small um, indoor venue, of just how the crowd reacted to that Dark Star. True, and it's 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 a place that's well known for uh, all. I mean, you know, Fish has used it as a major base. The Dead have used it as a major base. In addition to, to doing their Warlock show there, that's where in '86 they broke out Box of Rain. When Fish came back after their big hiatus, they opened their shows at the Hampton Coliseum. It's it's you know it, it's become a very very famous uh, place for bands to play, and I think when they get there, they really kind of you know turn up turn it up a notch. We saw a number of Dead shows there over the years, and they were always great. But this one's obviously a uh, a special one, and I have to say that the uh, the box set is really cool too. So if you don't have the box set, you should get it and check it out because it's got all of it and all the good stories and some cool little pins and you know ticket stubs and crap like that that they throw in. One of the chapters uh, of my book, the headline is Searchlight Casting for Faults in the Clouds of Delusion, which is uh, one of my favorite lines uh, from the song Dark Star. And my spin on that had to do with how we are all searchlights. uh, And sometimes we spend too much time casting our light, looking for faults out there in the world. In other words, living on the glass, half-empty side of things. And when we do that, we're operating in the clouds of delusion. We're operating in the, you know, with, with the cloud of our own uh, way of interpreting everything that we see in the world. Uh, maybe rather than seeing things uh, the way they really are or really could be. That's that's an example of of the kind of spin that uh, that are that gets put on the Grateful Dead lyrics in in the book, uh, the Deadhead Cyclist. Have you ever thought of yourselves as a searchlight? And with that great line we can all live by, ain't no ain't no time to hate, from Uncle John's band. Right, we always come back to that one. Unfortunately, we don't always live up to that ideal, do we? I mean, when I say we, I don't mean the five of us. I mean, you know, we as a species. Let's just say it that way. Well, I think that's true. And I think a lot of their songs, you know, speak to, you know, human foibles and, and, and things like that. And, you know, I, I, I view it as, as Robert Hunter uh, being an amazing poet with a very, very active brain, you know, highly energized by all the other things they were doing at that time. And, uh, you know, I, I love reading his lyrics and I love the annotated version of his lyrics because, you know, it does provide a little bit of context and background for some of the things that he, he writes about. Uh, but, you know, you and I and all of us could sit here, you know, and go back and forth on lyrics for hours. My son was just recently married in Atlanta. I went down there. Uh, my wife and I host the rehearsal dinner and he's got a bunch of buddies. They're all 29, 30 years old. They love the dead. They love fish as much as we ever did and maybe more. They're just so happy to be able to go mm-hmm. see it. So the toast I gave that night, I incorporated about 18 different lines from various dead songs and various fish songs, you know, and told them, okay, guys, you know, keep score. Let's see how many you can get. And it was fun because, you know, they, they recognize most of them, but I realized there's a few out there 
that you have to be a little bit more of a hardcore deadhead, you know, to really, uh, you know, uh, uh, pick up on. And, uh, you know, cloudy dreams unreal. Well, you know, if you, if you haven't listened to Addicts in My Life a whole lot, you're not going to know where that comes from, uh, you know, or other little uh, lines like that. But it, but it was fun, and if for no other reason, just because they were so excited to try and follow along, and then even more excited to find out what songs they were from so they could go find the lyrics. And, you know, I think that's just you know, one way to keep passing it on. And, and this is just good stuff that makes it easy to do. Yeah, I find myself speaking in Grateful Dead lyrics a, a lot, even even sometimes in situations where I don't expect, I don't even wonder whether who I'm talking to will get it. And I don't even try to explain it sometimes because it's, it, you know, it doesn't matter. It's still relevant and it still hits the nail on the head with respect to whatever the conversation is about. Well, here's, here's another one I can bring up. Uh, the one thing we need is a left-hand monkey wrench. That, that's, a, uh, uh, that's a line from um, one of the songs on Ace. Greatest story ever told. Yes, thank you. Uh, getting back to John Perry Barlow, one of the lines that he came up with. Uh, I had to research that one. I had always wondered, it's amazing how many times I've heard some of these lyrics and there's still a lot to learn, and I thought that was a pretty interesting lyric, and so I researched that. Does anyone know what a left-hand monkey wrench is? I can only assume that it's like uh, when you tell somebody, um, what do they do? They go hunting at night for... Snipe hunt. Snipe hunt, right. Yeah. You send them out to fight. Find me a left-handed monkey wrench, and you know they're gone for three hours. That's, that's what it is. It's the same as the snipe hunt. So in this, in the case of a snipe hunt, it was often like in the Boy Scouts, where they'd take a new recruit out into the woods, and they'd give him like a bag and a stick and stuff, and they'd have him, they'd have him, and and, and tell him what kind of sound to make to attract the snipe, and that that his job was to was to hunt for the snipe and capture it. Well, the left hand monkey wrench was used mostly in a military setting, where they would have so, for example, a sailor. A new recruit on the boat would be there, and they'd say, okay, as your first assignment, I need you to go get me a left-hand monkey wrench. Well, there, 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 is, no, there is no left-hand monkey wrench. There's no such thing as a left. There's, monkey wrenches are not uh, uh, hand-specific. And so I wrote a whole chapter about how uh, we all engage in these fool's errands, fool, a fool's errand. Uh, and I engaged in a fool's errand that made me think about this when um, a friend of mine texted me and asked me to help him, a conservative Republican, understand the mind of a liberal Democrat. And he asked, he asked the question in such a sincere way uh, that I was drawn in to the conversation uh, and so I thought, well, here's a chance to gain a better understanding between uh, liberals and conservatives. And so I tried to help him understand how uh, this was. This was right at the uh, right after uh, Biden had had uh, beaten Trump in the election, and um, he wanted to understand the the liberal mindset. The only thing I remember specifically from the conversation was uh, that I was telling him we've we just had to get rid of this guy and now we can get back to talking about big government versus small government and you know whether trickle down economics works and a lot of the nuts and bolts of the differences between uh democrats and republicans 
But we had a bigger problem um, uh, that needed to be addressed in this election. Well, anyway, I, 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 tried, to, I tried to explain all of that to him, and, and uh, it turned out to be a fool's errand because it just devolved into an argument, which is not what I wanted to have happen. Um, I didn't want an argument. I just wanted to answer his question, which seemed sincere. And, and it wound up devolving into a, a, an argumentative, I'm never con- going to convince you of anything, and you're never going to convince me of anything. And so it turned out to be a fool's errand. It turned out that he, he'd sent me looking for a left-hand monkey wrench when he asked the question initially. And so it was that, uh, it was that experience and that interaction that I used as the life lesson that I had learned from from the lyric uh, in Greatest Story Ever Told about the left-hand monkey wrench. I would have uh, responded to his inquiry by saying, here's a bag and go look for the fence, and this is where the snipe comes out. <laughs> because uh, you know, the, the, that is, even going into it, there's no possible outcome that's going to be um, possible if you're, you're too, if you're talking about two diametric, you know, polar opposites. Isn't that on, a shame, though? Political spectrum. I mean, it doesn't it's have funny. to be that way, and it, and it hasn't always been that way, but it is more that way now than it's ever been during my lifetime. Well, we, we, we've watched a, um, we've watched the, the uh, what's the proper word for it, the, essentially the end of civility, you know, over the last six or seven years, and a lot of that's based on the fact that people can scream into the void through social media without any uh, recourse. It's hard to have a civil conversation. There's no, you know, people aren't having dinner parties where they can have a constructive conversation when it's so much easier just to espouse whatever your, your belief is to, um, to an anonymous group of listeners. And a lot of them, like, the things that you can say online now are going to get a tremendous amount of likes, whether or not what you're saying is, is something that resonates to your community or not. Someone out there is going to like it, and someone out there is going to validate it. And as a result, people feel more empowered to say these things, to say whatever it is, whatever their belief is. And so, you know, look, I think it's important as a society we get back to um, to finding ways to interact civilly, but there's no outlet that uh, that, that um, provides for that anymore. Except for the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and that's, I think that's a big part of why, you know, we, we continue to be devoted to it in kind of, I don't know, religious fashion that that causes you to continue to speak in Grateful Dead lyrics and listen to concerts from 50 years ago and, you know, do all the things that we do as deadheads because it, because there's, there's a certain ideal in, uh, in human nature and in, in the human experience that comes through in these Grateful Dead songs that we long for and that we want to really deeply share in, in any way that we possibly can. Yeah, I agree with that. I do. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. I just want to uh, touch base again really quickly, though, on the, the left-handed uh, uh, monkey wrench concept and, you know, trying to pass this message along. And unfortunately, in my life, the message got convoluted because my kids were of the age when they were smaller uh, that they watched a lot of SpongeBob SquarePants. And there is an episode in SpongeBob SquarePants where they send SpongeBob out to find a left-handed egg beater. And son of a gun, if he doesn't find the last one on a shelf somewhere and bring it back. So my kids interpret that to mean you just have to look really hard, but you'll eventually find it. So we're, we're kind of losing something in the translation with the next generation. Maybe that's just too much SpongeBob. I don't know. But, uh, it, 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 you know, these things, they do tend to get passed down. Uh, and, and these cartoons usually tend to be geared more for adults than kids anyway, I've discovered. But, uh, yes. I'm is. pretty sure SpongeBob is a deadhead. Oh, have no doubt about that. How how could he not be? I've I've seen I've seen him wear a tie dye T shirt before. Yeah. Yep. And the best are the um, 
the episodes that keep popping up on Family Guy from time to time with Stewie. What, what was the one we were talking about, Rob, where he's, they were saying, oh, I'm inconsequential to this family. And the flashback was, yeah, like Bob Weir with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> you know, and it just made me laugh. You're like, they're, they're, they're tuned into that. They know that it's there, which, again, just I think speaks to, you know, the, the, the almost mainstream position. I mean, not almost clearly mainstream position that the Dead Command in American society today. And it's, it's just absolutely incredible. And, but the other thing I wanted to tell you is while I, I think that the dead are always a good healer, I've said on this show many times, and the next time you find yourself in that type of a conversation that you're describing to us, assuming you're face to face, you pull a joint out of your pocket and within 10 seconds, you're getting high. What brain is this? Where did you get it from? And within two minutes, you can't remember what you were talking about, and everybody's mellow and happy. So marijuana is here for a reason, and I really suggest that if people are looking for a reason to smoke, that's a great reason. The great uniter. So should we, uh, should we talk about some weed, Larry? Is that a good way to transition to what's happening in the weed world these days? Well, before you do that, I'm going uh, to sign off and uh, let you guys uh, do the other part of the show. But uh, I just want to thank you again for having me. It's it's great to talk to uh, fellow deadheads who are who are so uh, knowledgeable and passionate about the subject. I spent a year of my life writing a book about it called The Deadhead Cyclist, and it's not just about the Grateful Dead. In fact, it isn't really about the Grateful Dead, and it's not really about cycling. It's about life. It's about the life lessons that we can learn from the poetry of the Grateful Dead. And uh, like I said earlier in the show. Uh, the book is currently in the hands of my editor slash agent. Uh, we hope to we hope to get it out on the streets uh, sometime next year, hopefully as early in the year as possible. So be on the lookout for it, and you can get a taste of it at deadheadcyclist.com. And uh, be sure to uh, uh, log into boulderweekly.com and read my article about the reason why the uh, Dead & Company canceled their Florida shows. I hope I hope you'll have me on again. Call, call me anytime you have an opening, and uh, it would be a pleasure to join you again. Great. Well, good luck with all your baseball. Yes, thanks a lot. You guys take care. All right. So long, so long for now. Okay, Stu, thank you so much. Stu Sello. Let's uh, transition, Larry, over to a little bit of uh, talk about what's happening in the canvas industry. Uh, as always, lots of news out there. And I'm not sure if you've been following the story uh, in California about uh, the exposure of, you know, kind of the burner license situation. If you haven't, you know, I'm happy to, to fill you in. So about a year and a half ago, uh, it started to come to light that there was people that were out there that were uh, seeking licenses for distribution and, uh, and then using these licenses essentially to facilitate a handful of transactions where they'd buy cannabis on the, uh, the legal market and then immediately kind of shut that license down as they diverted all the product to the illicit market because getting a distribution license was A, easy to get, B, um, they were paying the tax on the purchase, and C, um, you know, there wasn't really, you know, much in the way of recourse and it was easy to kind of pass this through metric. So it was, it was kind of this, um, you know, well-known uh, secret that was in the industry that, you know, questionable whether or not the BCC knew about it, which is the, uh, the, the Canvas Control Commission here in, in California. But, uh, but more and more people started trying to, you know, bring it to the forefront saying, hey, this is a real problem because now we're seeing this massive diversion of product. And then it got to the point where, you know, the, the outlaws started being even more creative. You know, they're doing things like finding ways to uh, process a bunch of hemp uh, alongside a bunch of cannabis. And then they take the hemp and pop it hot with, uh, you know, saying it's tested for pesticide or residual solvent. And uh, then they take, you know, the, and say they destroyed it and they'd claim that that was the cannabis. And they take the cannabis oil they processed and immediately, you know, then send it out of state. 
So as of this past week, uh, someone finally filed suit, you know, and they actually filed suit against the BCC saying you guys, you know, either knew about this or you should have known, but by all accounts, you did know. Uh, the reason that you haven't exposed it yourself is because, you know, you're still deriving the tax revenue, at least on part of the purchase. And so, um, you know, you've turned a blind eye. So uh, it was one of those things that, you know, I'd, I've been discussing it for a while with uh, the guys at Marijuana Business Daily. I didn't want to necessarily go on the record to discuss it because I, I didn't want to, you know, put myself out there of, uh, you know, being a target to the BCC and print on this. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, there's enough people out there that are now validating this that it became a, a relatively decent story. Now, uh, MJ Business Daily has published two stories about it in the last week uh, and very curious to see whether or not it starts getting picked up by larger media. Because, look, there, we all know that there are holes in metric. There are, there are holes in all these seed-to-sale tracking systems. And if those holes can be exploited, there's people out there that are creative enough that they're going to do it. So I guess, you know, the reason I bring it up isn't so much to talk about the story, but it's to talk about, like, what do you think the responsibilities of regulators to, uh, to shut this down? Do you think more capital needs to be allocated to try to shut down these loopholes? Um, we all know create, that criminals are more creative than the legal guys in, in any industry. So, you know, how do you, uh, how do you stop the, uh, the process of, of diversion and how do you do it where, you know, the seed-to-sale tracking was meant to be infallible and now it's proving to have all sorts of issues? Well, that's a fascinating issue and, and I'm going to go read up on it a little bit more because I'd, I'd, I'd really like to learn more. But to me, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's just all about government making a decision. And either, you know, they want to be all in with a legal program or they want to kind of wink, wink, be in with a legal program. And for years, I've always felt that you know, of all the states, California most specifically falls into that category. You know, there's it's almost like, you know, uh, in the DNA of all Californians, right? You can do whatever the hell you want with marijuana because you live in California. The rules don't really apply to you. But, but I don't think that's it. I mean, because look, look, the big difference is that Illinois isn't a producer state. California is a producer state, right? So anytime you know your state is basically a consumer state and that's all you are, then it's a lot harder to you know go through the issues that California has. California has to deal with the double issue of like an illicit consumer market, but an illicit producer market as well. So you know that they've they've got to snuff out two things in parallel path. And the big difference is that by the time California cannabis reaches where you are in Chicago. You know, four or five people have touched it along the way, and by the time it hits the street, it's hitting the street at a price that's not much different than it would be in a dispensary. Whereas if you ship, you know, weed down from Humboldt or Mendocino down to L.A., you know, very few people have touched it, and you can sell pounds, you know, in, in the, the illicit market for, you know, 1100 bucks, 1200 bucks, and it's going to completely and totally undercut the industry. And then if you want to go a step further than that and say, okay, let's actually pretend we're acting in the, in the, the legal industry – Illinois just doesn't have the sheer volume of product that's being fed into the system, nor does New York, nor does Florida, nor do like any of the other major population states. Like California is an anomaly in that perspective, that them, Washington, and Oregon uh, of just being producer states. And Colorado maybe to some degree as well. You know, and I, but I think that a big part of that is, you know, exactly what you said. Look, and what I was saying too, you know, in California, since when, when did their constitutional amendment pass? Sometime in the 1990s. I mean, that, that's how far ahead of, of, you know, rights of people to smoke marijuana they were than the rest of us. You know, so when states like Illinois come online, you know, we do it exactly the opposite. Instead of having to deal with a, a, with a, a, a flourishing industry and get our arms around it and figure out how to handle it, uh, you know, we just start with the proposition there's nobody doing anything legal in this state unless 
you get a license from the state. You know, so I guess the argument would be that in a state like Illinois, it might be more difficult for something like that to happen because of all the rules that we have. You can only sell it in the dispensary if it comes from the cultivation center. Nothing can come from the outside into the cultivation center that you know, that isn't created there and that kind of a thing. Now, the flip side of that is, is that Illinois is a very, very rigid market. And, you know, the, the adult use price of marijuana is prohibitively high. You know, there, there's very little by way of uh, variation and, and, and variety to choose from. And, you know, quality, I think, while certainly decent uh, and, and good for how long the program has been around, you know, can't begin to compare to something that you could get from Mendocino or, or Oregon or one of those places out there where, you know, they just throw seeds in the ground and the next thing you know, you've got award-winning marijuana growing for you. Um, but what, I guess what I really meant was if the state of California wants to have a legal market, then they have a duty to protect the people who are participating in the legal market. And that means that they have a duty to go in and try and shut down as much as they can, as much as is feasible, those outside influences that upset the market in a way that are outside of the control of the legal participants in that market. But, you know, whether a state like California is willing to go rolling into the Green Triangle and start busting all of these legacy growers who have been there forever, I don't think they are. Uh, I don't think they want to. And, you know, I think that that creates an inherent conflict then, um, you know, between, call it the legacy growers and the modern market today. And, you know, at some point, that's going to have to be addressed. And I don't pretend to have the answer as to how to address it. You know, I'll freely admit that I, I'm a big customer of the legacy market when it's available. And, you know, that's uh, to me, you know, as a as a person who cares a little bit more about the quality of what I'm getting and, and even the price, because even in Illinois, uh, you know, prices from California are ridiculously low by comparison, uh, even after it's been shipped here. So, you know, in, in a perfect world, you know, everybody can grow they can grow good stuff and, and the governments will, will step in and protect it. I just don't know that it's ever going to be feasible to shut those types of markets down. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And again, this, you know, the one thing I've always pointed out is that with more legality across the country, then there's less and less places for you know, the rogue operators in California to ship to. So the only way to, uh, to get rid of the outlaws is to take away their market. Uh, you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon. I think that even if you were to say in the next, you know, 10 years, I mean, we're, we're still, according to what was put out last week through BDS and, um, and Forbes, I believe, is they're still saying 30% of the, uh, the market is legal and the rest of it is still illicit. That's, that's a massive amount of, uh, of cannabis that's still being sold in the illicit market. And, and regulators still refuse to believe this is a reality. Like, Wall Street refuses to believe it as a reality. They all think, uh, you know, if you create a legal market, like, why would anyone still access the illicit market? And they still don't understand that the economics are still so compelling on the other side that uh, that doesn't make any sense to, you know, not uh, access the illicit market if the product quality is just as good if it's just as easy to get it um, then the determining factor is, is still price so but at my point yeah. I, it, it, price yes but quality is is you know you, you there's no there's no strains being grown in Illinois that come close to competing with the quality of stuff that's available from California from Oregon and even from Colorado and and and, and you know, that's not to slam the, the cultivators here, but my very limited knowledge of cultivation is it takes a few harvests, it takes a few years before you begin to build up a quality of, of, of product that, you know, that, that people recognize it, you know, for what it is. And it may very well be that within a few years, certain strains coming out of Illinois will skyrocket to the top. I just don't know enough about how that works. But in the meantime, I can tell you that, you know, if you want to buy an eighth of an ounce of marijuana in Illinois, it costs 80 bucks from an adult use dispensary. It costs 60 bucks 
from a medical dispensary and it costs, you know, 30 to 40 bucks if you can find somebody who's been out there and brought it back and, you know, uh, we'll sell it to you. So uh, to me, it, you know, the bigger question, I think, for the entire marijuana industry is nationwide, what are we going to do about California? The last time I checked, the statistic was that three-fifths of all marijuana grown in the state are sold outside of the state. That's a huge volume of marijuana to be leaving that state. And if there's any, you know, if that number is even, you know, halfway accurate, it's it's still a huge volume. <laughs> It, it, it's significantly under. If, if you were asking me to handicap it, I would say that probably 90% of what's grown in California leaves the state. Because when you think about just, you know, like how big the state market is, the state market's only, you know, a $4 billion legal market. If you're saying that represents 30%, then that puts it at, you know, a $12 billion legal market, which in my mind, the math says that maybe there's $8 billion of, um, of retail cannabis that isn't captured in the legal market. But then you think about how big the market is in the United States and how much of that illicit market is being serviced by Californian-grown cannabis. And you have to think there's probably another $50 billion, 45 to $50 billion of cannabis that's coming out of, the, you know, out of California that's servicing all these other states. So if you think that that's $12 billion in, in you know, cannabis uh, in California plus another $45 billion uh, outside, that's $57 billion, of which $4 billion is captured within the state. That gives you a sense of just you know, how much of California's cannabis is on the illicit market. So again, you know, th- that's not the job of the BCC to stop. But it is the job of the BCC to say, okay, whatever enters the legal market needs to remain in the legal market, and it's absolutely um, up to us to, to make sure that we're the, uh, the auditors and the, um, and the sort of the law enforcement behind that. And it's up to other states as well to figure out ways to say, okay, how do we start shutting this down so that, you know, if we really want a legal market to exist, um, you know, how do we start snuffing out the, uh, the loopholes that allow the black market, the illicit market to, to remain? And that's something that, you know, it's not a question I think we're answering anytime soon. I just hope that there's an orderly migration that still continues where we see another, like, each year another $5 billion added to the top-line revenue of, uh, of the cannabis industry. And I hope it, you know, isn't just concentrated in the hands of a few. I hope it's, you know, more and more licensing opens up in states, and I hope they don't concentrate them in oligopolies because ultimately it's in the best interest of the consumer and the best interest of, of getting rid of an illicit market by giving greater access to everyone and through a much larger number of licensees. Well, you're absolutely right, and that is the right on the nose, the thing that's driving us so crazy in Illinois right now because we should have another 75 to 150 uh, licenses issued to adult use dispensaries that should be in the process of setting up and going online already, and we should have another 60 to 100 craft growers uh, you know, greatly expanding the variety and the volume of product that's available. But it's all gotten so tied up here politically, litigation-wise, different groups going at it with one another that, you know, they're, they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot. And that's why a state like, you know, California, yes, we, we, you know, it's reputation too, but this is a state that's perfect for that type of intrusion because you really, the average person on the street in Illinois, I don't think realizes that they're just like, wow, there's a dispensary. I can go buy marijuana. That's great. But they don't really have a sense of how much they're overpaying as compared to other states with dispensaries and, and everything else. For them, it's just kind of this neat idea that it's legal and they can walk into a nice-looking store and buy it. Um, but, you know, I, if, if they really understood what was going on or, you know, bothered to, to, you know, to understand the mechanics of the market and how much more they could be saving if there were more businesses out there to provide a competitive situation, I think we'd be getting a much louder pushback from the population. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and I'm going to use that as a, as a transition because uh, as much of a non-sequitur as it is, nobody likes to overpay for things. And when you think about it from the perspective of overpaying for cannabis at the retail level, 
investors feel the same way as overpaying for, for things on the side of what's in the best interest of the business. I don't know if you saw the, um, the executive compensation that just came out for Erwin Simon from Tilray today, but the guy got $13.7 million bonus in cash on Tilray this year, which brings his total compensation for 2021 to over $30 million between cash and bonuses on a company that, get this, trailing 12 months, has lost $357 million. So how is it that, that, that investors aren't waking up at this point going, cut, the inv- cut these bonuses off, cut the fat off? Like, at what point do you say, like, we, we are no longer going to stand by a company, even as you've watched the share price, you know, uh, degrade in a lot of the Canadian publics, even as you've watched the Canadian public still fail to turn a profit, they're still just, you know, feeding into this beast where they're paying their, their executives this way. I and mean, I think it's egregious, and I think that's uh, – I can't imagine that the investment community, especially when this is a NASDAQ-listed company – aren't looking at these guys going, you're pigs. Stop it. I, you know, look, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, on the other hand, it just goes back to what I say, which is, can you imagine, I mean, 10 years ago, five years ago, that you and I would be sitting around talking about a CEO of a cannabis company, you know, there being a debate over whether he's pulling down too much money, you know, at, at some millions of dollars. And it's all legal and it's all public and we can all talk about it. And I know that's kind of taking the sheep attitude that I just condemned a second ago, you know, for the people who don't understand what's really going on. But I do have to say that there's a part of me that's really proud that cannabis has reached the point where we can have this conversation, that this, these facts even exist, you know, and we can have this debate. But I would also swing over and say there would always be my hope that, you know, the way I view the cannabis industry is that we're not a bunch of pigs, that it's more of a Ben and Jerry's, you know, the richest guy, the the most, uh, the guy who gets the biggest salary doesn't make ten more than 10 times what the, you know, the, the, the lowest salary is. But at the end of the day, it's a business, right? And, you know, that that's where a lot of our dreams, I think, kind of, you know, run into reality nice and hard is... To me, that my limited knowledge, I say that's just a market correction, right? People see that happening and say, no, no, I don't like that, and do whatever they do. I appreciate your perspective, but uh, in, in every silver lining, there's a touch of gray. Amen, brother. All right. So you have to think that, uh, yes, it's beautiful that we're having a debate about you know the executive salaries of cannabis-based CEOs and the fact we have cannabis-based CEOs right now. But now that it has turned into the business that you know many of us were hoping that one day we'd be able to see that you know none of us really necessarily 15 years ago believed would happen. But now that we're there, uh, I think the same uh, economics that exist in any other industry need to start um, ringing true in this one as well. And if you know you're a tech CEO, you're um, you know a healthcare CEO, or name you know the other industries, ultimately you know you have a duty to the shareholders to produce. And if you're a failing business and you're continuing to put up zeros or negatives and you haven't, you know, turned a positive quarter in the entire time your business has been around, at a certain point, you know, I don't think it's right for these executives to go, oh, well, I went from, you know, a $400 million loss last year to a $300 million loss this year, and I should be rewarded for that. You know, the, uh, the, the market should vilify these guys. They should be, they should be crucified. Well, it, it, that's true. I mean, again, on a, on a more global scale, I guess... I mean, we can make that argument right about just about any industry. And I think that, you know, there's always, although, you know, typically you don't have it, although, again, I'm not enough of an expert with companies that are performing as poorly on paper, at least as this one is. But, you know, to me, it just speaks more to the fact that there never was really a whole much of an intention by any of these states to really foster a mom and pop economy. Uh, that you know, this is this is ultimately the goal. The more money these companies are making, the more taxes they're paying, and and all of that. You know, I, I think it's going to take 
many of us a little bit of time to kind of come to the grips with the reality that it is going to be the, you know, the GTIs and the Crescos and the Tilrays of the world um, that are just going to get so large that, you know, they'll become the Anheuser-Busch and Miller and Coors and, and those groups that, you know, will really, really run the market. And, you know, to me, the interesting thing will always be, you know, uh, how does the green triangle, you know, stay, stay relevant and, and compete with that. But I think that may be asking the, the question backwards and, you know, Cresco can be as big as it wants to be. And all of these companies can, you know, be mammoth, but unless and until they are in a position to be able to develop a large quantity of flour with the quality that comes out of California, you know, they, it's, we'll see, it, but maybe just get a lot of negative returns. Look, I, I, yeah, I'm fine with, you know, the Crescos and the GTIs of the world um, taking large executive salaries if they're creating shareholder value. And if they are, then I, then I think it's you know, absolutely incumbent upon the market to reward guys for creating value and, and running really good businesses. I don't feel that way if you're, if you're losing money. If you're losing money hand over fist, then, you know, I don't, you should be looking at it from a much different perspective. As far as what does that mean for the Emerald Triangle? What does it mean for, you know, Northern California going forward? I mean, look, I'm a firm believer that, you know, California right now is in a period of kind of uh, suspended animation that, you know, it has all this production that exists that right now is flowing into the illicit market. And I keep trying to figure out ways to kind of repackage that or repurpose it so it's not flowing into the illicit market. But that will happen. With federal legalization, then California does become the producer state and every bit of cannabis that's being, you know, swallowed up right now across the country in the illicit market will once again get swallowed up again on the, the legal market when and if, you know, they're able to have that, um, that ability. So, you know, we call it five years, eight years downstream, and this is why, you know, all the larger MSOs are trying to figure out what the California strategy is. California is the market that's going to be exporting to the rest of the country. And I, th- I think we've talked about this before, and I just want to make it, you know, clear to our listeners. That is the case. And so, you know, we have to, we have to look at it from the perspective of, you know, how do you turn off the production for a period of time, knowing you can turn it right back on at the time appropriate so, you know, I always use the Canadian tar sands as an example of, you know, when OPEC raises the price of oil to a certain level, then the tar sands turn back on. And when the, uh, the price of oil drops, then it becomes no longer profitable for the Canadians to actually make money with dirty oil. So they turn it off. And that, that, that supply only exists when necessary and when needed. And it's only in a very specific, you know, sort of time frame. Other than that, they just can't compete against the other groups. And I look at California Canvas the same way that, you know, like, it, it, it exists. It'll always exist. It's got the best climate, and when it's appropriate, then it'll become you know the Napa Valley, Paso Robles, Sonoma of, of the world, right? I was just going to say, right? It's it's it's. I mean, it's not that any different from the wine. Uh, you know, you can you can grow grapes in any state. Heck, my son got married in Georgia. We had the wedding at a winery, and the wine we drank came from grapes grown in Georgia. You know, and I certainly don't have a sophisticated enough palate to be able to sit there and tell you that, uh, you know, that this wine was any less, uh, you know, desirable or satisfactory uh, for what we were doing. But why not with marijuana, right? I mean, you know, states will be free to do what they want, right? So New York's a protectionist state. You can't have a wine from a California uh, producer sent directly to your address unless you're a uh, you know you're a licensed uh, distributor. So if states want to take that approach to try and protect you know the growers within their states, they'll have that option, I suppose. Or you know maybe they will just find a way to embrace the California market and uh, you know how, however you would do it once we you know if you relax title uh, uh, schedule one and let them start transporting across state lines in a legal fashion. You know maybe there's a way for Illinois producers, let's say, you know, to be the recipients of the of the California growth, and then they can still take it here, and, and you can still have Illinois companies making a profit off of it. Ultimately, I think that's what happens. I think we're a few years off, but we can continue to dream um, as we go through this. So, uh, Larry, as always, man, 
great show. Lots of fun to, to discuss the, um, the intricacies of what's going right and wrong in the canvas industry with you, as well as what's going right and wrong in Grateful Dead world with you. So much appreciated. My pleasure. No, it's always fun. A uh, special shout out again to Stu Salo. Thank you. Please check out his website and, and read his book. He's an interesting guy. I can't say I agree with everything that he says, but it sure has me thinking. So, uh, you know, I, I give him a lot of credit for that. Just so everybody knows, and you can plan your calendars accordingly next Wednesday, uh, or, well, next week when we tape our show, I should say, I will be uh, in Port Chester, New York, standing right outside of the Capitol Theater. So assuming that our uh, producer guru, Dan Humiston, can concoct a way for me to uh, viably be able to join the show for a little while from there, I will be able to give you updates on the first two nights of the quintet and a preview of what we're all anticipating for the third night. And I will say that uh, with all due respect to Dead & Co., who are a great band and they, they really kill it every night, I'm just so excited to see this group. I just can't wait. Well, with that, uh, we'll leave our listeners with a little bit more of Formerly the Warlocks from 10989 with the, uh, the encore of Addicts of My Life. And if you want to hear another crowd reaction of, you know, maybe not the best harmony of all time, but, uh, but certainly one of the best crowd reactions to a song that hadn't been played in, uh, I think at that point, uh, 27 years. Uh, this is a little bit of the addicts to, uh, to Encore, uh, formerly the Warlocks from Hampton. Uh, this is Rob Hunt, and on behalf of Larry Mishkin, um, thank you very much for joining us at the Deadhead Canvas Show, and please enjoy your canvas responsibly. Thanks, Rob. Talk to you all soon. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.